Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The Gospel lesson this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to go send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of the wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who who are there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet we wipe off and protest against you. Yet, know this, the kingdom of God has come near you. This is the word of God. Our second scripture comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians, the sixth chapter, and I will read the first ten verses. My friends, If anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if those who are nothing think they are something, they deceive themselves. All must test their own work. Then that work, rather than their neighbor's work, will become a cause for pride, for all must carry their own loads. Those who are taught the word must share in all good things with their teacher. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was 1965, just as our first combat troops were hitting the ground in Vietnam, a month after Malcolm X was assassinated in light of the Philadelphia race riots and on the heels of those terrible Palm Sunday twisters tearing through the Midwest, that Hal David and Burt Bacharach composed a response, a song that summed up what we were feeling. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, 
It's the only thing there's just too little of. Words just as true today. You feel it, don't you? We're at a love deficit. There's a dearth of compassion. The world needs love. And research can prove it. University of Michigan research, no less. In 2011, U of M's Sarah Conrath chaired a study that confirmed what we have already surmised. Empathy is on the decline and narcissism is on the rise. More than ever before, we are less caring of others and more worried about ourselves. If we're low on empathy, we're even shorter on compassion because empathy to feel with another person precedes compassion, which is to suffer with another person. As one goes down, so does the other. Sometimes it feels like these are endangered traits, empathy and compassion. This week, reading Karen Armstrong's book, uh, 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life, which we are encouraging all of you to read as part of our First Pres Reads program, I kept asking myself why, if being compassionate is a part of our very humanness, then why is it declining? Why haven't Pulse and ISIS, flooding and fire, Zika and Gitmo, why haven't they made us more compassionate? Has the relentless barrage of bad news, last month's massacre in Orlando, this week's terror in Turkey and Bangladesh, has it left you feeling more compassionate? Are you suffering more with the broken world? Or maybe you feel, as I do sometimes, just more isolated, more afraid, more depressed. When compassion decreases, what fills the void? Armstrong suggests it may be our worst tendencies, entitlement and self-righteousness. She says we may be more concerned with being right than with being compassionate, more focused on being right than doing what is right. Maybe so. The day of the Orlando massacre, the first words of a potential world leader were, appreciate the congrats for being right on radical Islamic terrorism. Armstrong also challenges us that we are more concerned about our rights than doing what is right. In the nightmare that was Sandy Hook Elementary School and after every mass shooting that has taken place in this country, gun sales have surged. Our compassion for people who are suffering doesn't lead us to passion for a better world. What else fills the void when compassion is diminished? So often when we are less caring, less engaged with people and communities in pain, it leads to increased narcissism, isolationism, and self-centeredness. We sense that anger is on the rise for people. We get that. But I worry most about a rise in cruelty. After the tragic events uh, two weeks ago at Pulse, there were vigils and prayers and speeches. There were millions of dollars raised for LGBTQ programs, victims, families, and survivors. Even the Pope said the church should apologize to gays. And yet days later, extremist evangelical pastors praised the shooter for killing the victims and called it God's wrath against homosexuality. Cruelty. The Internet has paved a smooth path for cruelty. It's so much easier when you don't have to be mean to someone's face. Cyberbullying and teen shaming are new terms to our lexicon because anyone can set up a Facebook account or a Gmail address and be nasty. Nearly one in five school children, one in five, were bullied last year through email, chat rooms, instant messaging, and texting. 
Internet trolls are people who get online anonymously to post mean and divisive things, often responses to articles and blogs. A This American Life episode this spring shared the story of a female comics encounter over the course of a year with an Internet troll who tried to shred her self-esteem online through verbal brutality that focused on her weight and political preferences. A middle school girl right here in Michigan committed suicide after being the victim of cyberbullying, anonymous cruel messages pushing her over the edge, and in response to her death, mean messages continued, including, good you're gone. Tweeters have their platform too. Even Steph Curry's three-year-old was the object of obscene words on Twitter during the final Cavs-Warriors basketball game. The internet is a virtual extension of what we experience in real time. Everyone here has heard a comment or gotten an email or had a conversation with a family member or a friend or neighbor that has given us pause at the lack of reflection and empathy, the absence of compassion and the presence of vitriol. We remember those moments because it usually surprises us. We don't expect people we like to be hard-hearted or strident or hateful, but something has made them so on a particular issue, and we want to back away from them. We want to withdraw. I think of C.S. Lewis's image of hell in his book, The Great Divorce, where there is a vast gray city inhabited only at its outer edges. In the middle are rows and rows of empty houses because everyone who had once lived in them has quarreled with their neighbors and then moved out. And then they've squabbled with the new neighbors and they've moved out again. Christians do it all the time. We're capable of drawing a map to get to that hell. Congregations are full of people who, in disagreement on key issues of our time, split to form other churches or move towards other believers whose God looks and sounds like them. We prefer to be right rather than to do right, to protect our rights rather than to change. We have a right to move away from dialogue, to surround ourselves with people who think like us. We are entitled to determine the limits of our own compassion. And then we say we're doing it for the sake of Jesus, who calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Can we stop the flow of compassion out of our world and infuse it once again with love? Karen Armstrong thinks so. Get her book, check out her work online, listen to her TED Talk, sign her Charter for Compassion. We must recover our compassion, she says, and we start... By going back to our roots, the golden rule, first espoused by Confucius five centuries before Christ said it, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. People of faith and of no faith can find common ground here as some version of the golden rule is embedded meaningfully in the foundations of most every moral creed. In most religions, it is compassion suffering with those who suffer that brings us away from ourself and our ego and into the presence of the divine. This kind of love moves us into the nearer presence of God when our ego steps aside and a holy power better than ourselves takes over. Faith, Armstrong says, is more about behaving a certain way than believing a certain way. You can do your way into thinking or think your way into doing, as Budge Gear used to say. Do first, think later, Armstrong says. Lead with the heart and the hands, not with the mind. B 
behave and then believe, it all starts with do. Today, First Press starts a journey to make a dent in isolationism and anger and depression and fear and to replace it with compassion. Today, we commit ourselves to become more loving, less self-centered, less ambivalent, less cruel. So I invite you to do her part and take the first step to learn about compassion. Learn about our common humanity, our evolution over centuries from mere survivalists into self-giving people, reflective, able to live safely and generously within community. Our ability to put me first, I need to be right, and these are my rights, that mentality aside has always made us people who are capable of hope and tolerance and equality. Compassion is what keeps us from living in separate silos and camps so that we can come together with those we know little about and even fear. Our Muslim brothers and sisters, the Hindus, the Jains, the Sikhs, the agnostics, even our enemies. And she says that if you can attempt this first step to learn about compassion, we will come to see how much others have given to make this world good and be more able to let go of our preconceptions and prejudices that lead us to call them other, to fear and avoid them. We have so much in common. We all have compassion inside of us. The challenge before us is to remember that again, remember that and then pursue it. For far more than learning about compassion, we are called to practice it. It's a much harder part of this first step. It was hard for the 70 that Jesus chose. He had to give them a whole lot of advice. It was hard for the young church in Galatia. The apostle Paul had to lay it out for them. And it will be hard for us who seek to know and follow Jesus in our time. Compassion is just as hard and just as complex as it was over 2,000 years ago. In Luke's gospel alone, do we come to the story of Jesus sending out laborers on behalf of the kingdom. He selects 70, sending them out ahead of him to spread the word of his coming. They are to preach and teach and heal, accepting danger, deprivation, and risks. They are to go to each house with a kind of radical hospitality and bring a blessing, this news that the kingdom of God is drawing near. No matter who they are, in compassion, they are to heal them and bring them this news that grace and mercy are coming even to them, that this man who is coming is for them. Now, Jesus carefully sets expectations for the 70 that are just as good for us today. At times, you will be rejected, he said. Some people fear good news. They don't want to be loved. They want to suffer alone. They prefer that the kingdom of God does not draw near. So you must meet and accept people where they are, not where you want them to be. Try. Give what you can to those who will receive it and then rely on the Spirit, saying, your peace will either rest there or it will return to you. Just as surely as your feet will get dusty, you will be turned away. And you can, feeling frustrated, shake the dust off your feet. But know this, it's not about you. Go and do the right thing. And let me take care of the rest. And expect something else, Jesus is saying. Going to people in love to offer them something, even to suffer with them, is hard. Listen for how complicated this is. You come with power and authority to people, but you also come vulnerable like lambs amidst wolves. 
You come in self-confidence, but you come totally humble. You come with urgency before this harvest happens, but you do not force your own agenda. When rejected and resisted, be accepting. This is a mutual thing you are doing, so receive help when you are giving help. You come strong and able, but you come to depend on others too. too. Take what is offered. It is in the giving and receiving, in the mutual conversation, in the listening and the speaking, that any blessing can be offered and take root. From this story, too, we are reminded that if we want to come alongside people and connect with them and meet them where they are, we have to show up. Whether we offer a blessing or compassion, we have to be there. Jesus chooses real people, not robocallers. They can't hold a rally or post a banner or a bumper sticker or send a group text or a bulk mailed postcard or a Snapchat to tell them that this loving presence is coming to heal and to help them. They have to really be present, but not all by themselves. He sends them in pairs reminding us that we need partners in service to handle and offer love and care and compassion. Paul's words to the Galatians are given to people who already have the good news. They're they're learning to live it out together. They're offering compassion to one another. And even in that situation with those we're in relationships with, it is still complicated. Bear one another's burdens, Paul writes, with compassion suffer with them carry one another. That's the way it is with Christ. But yet, all must carry their own loads. Well, which is it? Do we let others show us compassion, or do we shoulder our struggles alone? Between chapter 5 and 6, there are so many points where Paul contradicts himself. The reason why he's so unclear is because he himself is struggling with it, loving people, suffering with them, letting them suffer with us. Enduring our differences is not easy. It is not straightforward. It is hard. There's a Buddhist story about two monks who were sitting beside a river. When a woman came along who needed help to get to the other side, she asked the monks if they would help her get across. The first monk refused to even acknowledge her presence because it was forbidden for monks to touch a woman. The second monk, however, agreed to carry her to the other side, And lifting her, he carried her across the water. When he came back, he and the first monk sat quietly for six hours. The first monk, who had declined to help the woman, finally turned and asked, Was she heavy or light? The second monk answered him, You are still carrying her. It is not always clear how and when to bear the burdens of others. And compassionate people will have to wrestle with this. So what are we to do today as we begin this journey to become more compassionate people? Well, first, let's do what Armstrong asks and learn about compassion. Meditate on it. Ask yourself how you're doing at it. Surround yourself with examples. Shift the pendulum of social media and make the Internet your ally. Listen to positive podcasts like Do Good, Be Great. Read the Passionate Pioneers column in the Huffington Post. Spend time each morning on goodnewsnetwork.org. Bet you didn't even know that's out there. Go serve alongside a compassionate saint serving breakfast at St. Andrews. Look for compassionate people and learn from them. Second, learn about being compassionate from our own texts. 
the Bible. Compassion was just as complex and difficult then as it still is today for us. In a league of their own, Gina Davis, the first women's professional baseball team's pitcher, tells her coach, Tom Hanks, she's leaving the team and she's going home. She's tired of the pressure. She misses her family. She's weary of the hoots and the catcalls from the fans. Just got too hard, she tells her coach. It's supposed to be hard, he says. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. It's the hard that makes it great. Well, Jesus and Paul and Tom Hanks got this. It's hard. But you're not alone. We're in it together. This is how we make America, the church, and the world great again. We don't have to wait for the 12th step to become more compassionate. I encourage you to start now. Embrace the complexity. Carry the woman across the water. Do one to others. Do what is hard. Do it for the sake of Jesus. Do it for the sake of religion. Do it for people who have no religion. And do it for the sake of the world that needs love, sweet love. Because it's the only thing that there's just too little of. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You sent your Son, Jesus, to live among us, to comfort us but also to make us uncomfortable and to demonstrate the path of a life of radical compassion and love. He went so far as to die on a cross for us and for our deliverance. His body was broken, his blood was shed, but yet this was not the end. He rose from the grave, he conquered death, he brings new life. So we thank you. Holy are you, God of compassion, for when death threatened your children, and sin turned, vowed to turn the universe back to chaos. Jesus came yet again, Lord and Savior, to heal. He did not grow weary of doing right things, but confronted the wrongs of the world, endured the violence of sin that we might receive the grace forever, carried our sins to the cross that we might bear burdens for others. He went ahead of us into death that we might walk in the way of the kingdom. Jesus Christ, He came and lived among us and challenges us to return to You. He calls us to bring healing and hope. He calls us to live in love. For in love for us, His body was broken, His blood was spilled, and He died. And then He rose again. And so we can shout out with good news that Christ has died, Christ is risen and will come again. So God, pour out Your Spirit upon these these gifts of bread and cup pour out your holy spirit among us that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of christ's body and blood spirit unite us with christ and with everyone who shares this feast all around this world send us out to be christ's hands and feet in our communities and all across the world for this and more we pray in the way of jesus who shows us the way our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. 
For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.